Good to see you guys. Today we're continuing in part three of our summer series called At the Movies. And in this blockbuster series, we've been having a lot of fun as a church, but our hope has been that this time was also going to be very impactful in the lives of our people as we dive into some of Hollywood's biggest hits throughout recent history and along the way unpack some core spiritual truths from God's Word that we can kind of use and impart in our lives and also for the benefit of our church community. Now, one of the very first movies that I ever remember watching as a little kid with my parents, I was probably around three or four years old, was the movie Nine to Five. Have any of you seen Nine to Five? Can I see a show of hands? All right, lots, several. And probably anyone over 40 maybe has seen it. Okay, the rest of you guys like never heard of it. So I'll, I'll cue you. Nine to Five came out in 1980. It's a 1980 American comedy film directed by Colin Higgins. And it starred Lily Tomlin, Jane Fonda, and Dolly Parton as three working women who live out their fantasies of getting even with and overthrowing their company's horribly unethical, sexist, egotistical, lying bigot of a boss played despicably well by Dabney Coleman. And the film grossed over a hundred million dollars in 1980, which was incredible at that time. And it launched Dolly Parton, who had already established herself as a successful singer and musician and songwriter, but it, it now made her a legitimate acting talent as well. And it permanently placed her into mainstream popular culture as a Hollywood icon. It also made her, from what my parents tell me, um, as one of my very first crushes as a little kid, okay? So over 40 years later, Nine to Five is still listed as one of the hundred funniest movies of all time. Now, uh, in this series, we've been looking at the themes of different movies and what the Bible has to say on some of these topics. And, and let me just say that this incredible book known as the Bible, or really, you know, it should be called a library of books and letters known as the Bible, written over a couple thousand years by some 40 different authors who we believe are inspired by God because it tells one incredible and connected story. Um, the Bible really is my playbook when it comes to how to live life. And I truly believe that if we're going to be a people who live out what it teaches, if we start to do that, that, that our lives will be better. I mean, the schools we attend will be better. The, the, the companies we work for will be better. Our families will be better. And you know, really our church community will be better. And the movie 9 to 5 is really at its core a study of leadership and work ethic. It has some good examples of this seen in our three heroines in this movie, and it has a terrible example of this in the wicked and evil boss played by Coleman. So my plan today is to unpack a little bit of what the Bible has to teach us on this topic of leadership. Now let me walk you through a little bit of my leadership journey so you're kind of familiar with my story. Many of you know this, but I didn't grow up in a Christian home. My parents immigrated to the United States from India. I grew 
grew up in a Hindu family. Um, I was the first in my family born here. I, I was born in Washington, D.C., grew up in Maryland. And um, I didn't start attending church uh, until middle school because my best friend, Mike Teeter, became a Christian, and he kept inviting me to his church, Melwood Church of the Nazarene, which was about a mile from my house. He kept inviting me over and over and over again for about a year, and he finally got me to come with the promise of cute girls in his youth group. And then in 1991, a few years later, as a freshman in high school, I finally gave my life to Jesus. And he changed my life. I mean, he power washed my soul. He gave me a brand new perspective on life. But as I started to regularly attend church, I just had this thing in me where I would just look at things and I would look at the way things worked and the way things operated. And I would think in my mind, I think I can make that better. And that's just the way my brain operates. And if you're wired like me, then, then you get that. You understand that. Like you can't even walk into a restaurant without critiquing it, right? I, I went to um, IHOP with my kids for breakfast um, a couple weeks ago. And um, immediately as I walked in, I, my brain just starts analyzing the place. And I think, um, yeah, I would handle that whole finding a seat thing a little bit differently and how that's processed. And I'm sitting down in my seat and I'm observing and I'm like, that server is terrible and should be fired. That manager over there definitely should be fired. That server is awesome and probably should be promoted to be the manager of this place. And my brain just starts kind of working and critiquing everything in there. And so after I graduated from college, I got my very first ministry position at a church. And it was as a children's pastor at a church of about 500 people. And we had about 100 kids in children's ministry. And I had all these ideas ideas of children's ministry. I'd studied child development and I thought, hey, now that I'm a pastor and I have this title, I am Pastor AJ, gosh darn it, people are going to listen to me. Those of you laughing, you get this, right? And I quickly learned something. I quickly learned that just because you have a title doesn't mean you're a leader. See, I learned pretty quick that that church already had a leader in children's ministry. And her name was Miss Jane. And she was an awesome leader. And she loved kids. And she also had a lot of power because she was the senior pastor's wife. And Miss Jane was the real leader at the church. And so I quickly discovered, as this young pastor, that if I had a good idea, I didn't need to share it with everyone. I didn't need to convince the pastor and the church board and the children's council and all these things. I just needed to share it with Miss Jane and get Miss Jane on board. And if I could convince her that it was a good idea, she would cut through all the red tape and we could do it. Now that bothered me at times because I was young and immature as a leader and I wanted people to listen to me. I was the pastor. But I started to realize something which I think was a valuable lesson. I started to realize, oh my gosh, you can lead through people. You can lead through people. But I still didn't really understand leadership. And then a, a couple years later into this role as a children's pastor, I learned about this church conference happening in Atlanta, Georgia, called the Grow Up Conference. And um, I really wanted to go. So on my own dime, Julie and I decided to take our vacation week and to go to this church conference to hear from some, some really amazing speakers that maybe you've heard of. People like Andy Stanley and Reggie Joyner and John Maxwell, who's like the master of leadership. 
And, and they talked about the concept of godly leadership. And I'd never heard that stuff before. And it absolutely blew my mind. And so at that conference, I made a decision that I wanted to learn everything I could possibly learn about leadership. And I think I bought like every book they had written at the conference. I spent like $150 at the conference, which was a big investment for me at the time. This was 20 years ago. And my full-time salary as a children's pastor at the time was $25,000. That was my full-time working 50-hour a week salary. The Church of the Nazarene had a motto back then about its pastors that if you keep them humble, we'll keep them poor. That was their motto, okay? So I spent a ton of money... But I made a decision that day that I was going to invest in leadership. And ever since then, I have made that a priority in my life to be a student of godly leadership. And you know, a, a lot of people talk about leadership. And as they talk about leadership, they ask this question. We'll throw it up on the screen. What's the best way to lead people? What's the best way to lead people? Now, some people think it's this. Some people think the confidence Confidence is the best way to lead people. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I, I like a confident leader. I like someone who's, who has confidence. And to be completely honest and completely transparent with all of you this morning, sometimes I struggle with confidence. Um, I am so honored to be your guy's pastor. And this is going on four years now as being your pastor. And I, I hope we're here for another 20. I, I honestly do. Um, but I want to be a good pastor. I want to I be the best pastor I possibly can be. And, and I'm a person. And sometimes I fall short and I beat myself up at times because I feel like I don't measure up to the standard. Some people say that, that leadership is all about confidence, though. That you have to be really confident to be a great leader. And, and I think that's a part of it. I think it's a part of it. But I don't think that's everything. Because, you know, there was a guy named Joseph Stalin who had a great deal of confidence, right? Very confident leader. And he was responsible for the deaths of tens of, of millions of people. So, so I don't think that confidence is what it's all about. Other people say that no, it's, it's not confidence, it's this. It, it's, it's vision. That vision is what it takes to be a great leader. And I want to let you guys know, I love vision. I'm a big vision guy. I believe that vision directs us towards a common goal, and it can be the difference between a good organization and a great organization. In fact, if you've been here for a while, you know that we talk about mission and vision all the time. We talk about our five core values all the time, and we unpack that because we want mission to be at the forefront. In fact, the Bible teaches in Proverbs 29, 18, that where there is no vision, the people perish. That you're just a, a ship just sailing around with no direction and people are just lost. And so I believe you need to have vision. And some people say vision is the most important thing of leadership. And, and while I agree that vision is important, I don't think it's everything when it comes to godly leadership. Because there was a guy who had a vision and his name was Adolf Hitler. And we wouldn't call him godly, right? I mean, I've been to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., and in Israel, and I've seen his vision, and it was in every sense of the word evil. So while vision is good to have, godly leadership isn't only about vision. See, see I believe that the greatest way to become a godly leader is actually found in Scripture, and it's found in 1 Corinthians 13. Now, real quick question, just because I'm curious. How many of you, show of hands, 
had a portion of 1 Corinthians 13 either read at your wedding or you've been to a wedding where you've heard that love passage read. Can I see a show of hands? So, wow, like most of us in the room here. Okay, awesome, awesome. But it, it hit me one day as I was reading through 1 Corinthians, and, and I love the Apostle Paul. He's one of my favorite people in the Bible. If you don't know much about Paul, he wrote much of the New Testament that we have in our Bible. He planted, he was an incredible church planter. He planted churches all around the Mediterranean Rim. And in reading his letters in the New Testament, um, it makes me sometimes feel better about myself as a pastor because I began to realize that Paul planted some pretty crappy churches. That's, that's what you learn when you read the Bible. Everybody talks about how great, you know, we, we kind of like idolize it, like the New Testament church was so wonderful and so awesome. The truth is, in many ways, it was more jacked up than churches today, okay? See, if you plant a great church... You don't have to write them a letter and say, people, you need to stop getting drunk taking communion. You don't have to write that letter, which is what Paul had to do, especially in 1 Corinthians. Like, if you think your church experience has been jacked up in your life, read 1 Corinthians tonight. Before you go to bed tonight, just read that. You will feel better about your church experience because it was like Christians gone wild back then. It was, it was crazy. And in looking in 1 Corinthians in its entirety as a letter, much of 1 Corinthians is actually on this topic of godly leadership, of how we're all called to be leaders for God as followers of Jesus and how to be a godly leader. And 1 Corinthians 12 talks a lot about leadership. It talks about the gifts given to us by God to lead, how we're all part of this thing called the body of Christ, and each of us have unique talents and abilities, and we're all invaluable to this mission that God has here for his church. And likewise, in chapter 14, it continues to talk about leadership, but sandwiched in the middle of 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 14, is this strange passage of 1 Corinthians 13, and this topic of love. And it's almost like Paul was writing on leadership. He was like, I'm writing on leadership. I'm writing on leadership. I'm writing on leadership. Hold on a second. Let me pause for a minute and throw down some verses because some young Christians are going to get married someday and they're going to need something at their wedding. Love is patient. Love is kind. But I don't think he did that. I don't think that was his intent. I think 1 Corinthians 13 is actually the glue that holds 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14 together. And as Paul talks about leadership in chapter 12, he actually ends chapter 12 with this verse saying this about leadership. He says, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. If you want to know how to be a godly leader, get ready, because I'm going to show you the most excellent way. And it's not about confidence, and it's not about vision. See, I believe the 1 Corinthians 13 is all about what it takes to be a godly leader. And here's how he starts in 1 Corinthians 13.1. He said, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but I don't have love, then I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Now let me stop there for just a second. Can we all agree that the ability to speak, to communicate, is a gift, Right? Because we've all sat through good presentations and good speakers, and we've all sat through terrible presentations and horrible speakers, right? I remember taking a course where the entire class had to give a presentation, and there was someone who was presenting, and in a five-minute presentation, they said the word, um, a hundred times. In fact, I stopped counting at a hundred times. If someone had made a drinking game, they would have died, okay? A part of me died listening to that presentation that day. 
Speaking is definitely a leadership gift. Some people have it, others don't. But Paul says, if I'm a great speaker, Paul says, if I'm the best speaker in the whole world, but I don't have love, I'm like a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, here's what I know. All of you today probably going to leave the service. You're going to jump in your car. You're going to put on your favorite radio station or start playing your playlist in your car off your phone or whatever. And I can almost guarantee you that nobody in here has the gong track on their phone, right? Or the clanging cymbal where you're just driving down Route 1 and you just hear a banging cymbal in your car the entire time. Don't think anybody has that, okay? If you have kids, how many of you are parents? Can I see a show of hands? Okay, a lot of parents here this morning. If you have kids and your kid comes home one day from school really excited and says, Mom and Dad, first day of band class, I'm going to be playing the cymbals. You know what you're doing as a parent? You're calling that school like right then. Can I get a transfer out of that class? Can we pick a different instrument? Like you're on that, right? You're going to switch them out. But Paul says if you can speak really, really well, but you don't love people, your leadership is completely ineffective. I don't know about you, but as a pastor, as a communicator, that's really, really convicting for me. Paul then goes on to say this, 1 Corinthians 13, 2. If I have the gift of prophecy, if I can fathom all, you know, mysteries, all knowledge, if I have a faith that can move mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. If you're really smart, is what he's saying. If you're really, really smart, you know all the Greek, you know all the Hebrew, you know, you have, you have faith and belief in God, you've memorized so much scripture, you memorized the whole Bible, but you treat people around you like crap. You think you're better than everyone. You think you're smarter than everyone else. Paul says, if I do that and I don't have love, I'm nothing. And then he says this in verse 3. If I give all I possess to the poor, if I give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. I gain nothing. And that's what some religious people do, right? That's what the Pharisees in Jesus' day did. They, they would give something to the poor and they would make a big show of it. They, they would make a small sacrifice like fasting. And they would say, look at me, I'm fasting. Look how holy I am. Look how righteous I am. But, but if you do all these good deeds and you follow all these list of rules like a good little Christian, but in your heart of hearts, you don't have love for other people, Paul says you gain nothing. And then he starts with these famous words. Love is patient. Love is patient. And we can probably spend a month or more unpacking this next passage, and maybe one day we will. But for the sake of time, I'm just going to focus on this first little part of verse 4 today. Because I think if we actually lived out this little sentence... We might not need to read another book on Christian leadership for the rest of our life. And we would start to become a godly leader that other people would actually want to follow. Now, if I'm being completely honest with you guys, um, I am still a work in progress when it comes to this. I, I was hanging out with Brad Sass about a week ago, right, Brad? And we were talking about this. We're like, man, 
What's the fruit of the spirit you struggle with? Patience. Like really struggling with patience. We were in a car. People were cutting us off and we are just, man, it's hard to be patient. I'm not a very patient person at times. I, I'm on a spiritual journey just like the rest of you. But this is something I'm trying to work on trying to develop in my life. And Paul says that's what it's all about. And then he ends chapter 13 by saying this. He says, when I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When, when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is what? love. I'm telling you. Here's what Paul is unpacking. He's saying it's not confidence. It's not vision. He's saying leadership by love is the greatest way that you can lead. But it's also the most challenging. It's also the most difficult way to lead. Because can we admit something today? Can we just admit this truth? Here's a big truth today. People are often hard to love. Right? I'll prove it to you. Raise your hand if you know somebody that's hard to love, look around the room. Look around the room. Almost every hand in the air. And if you didn't raise your hand right now, they're all probably talking about you. Just want to point that out, okay? For example, in church world, in church world, I rarely get to deal with normal people. I can count the number of times on one hand that I've ever gotten a call from somebody or an email from somebody that said anything close to this. Hey, pastor, just wanted to let you know, I love you, love your family, love my church, love my spouse and kids unconditionally, decided to up my tithe to 20% this year, signed up to start serving more. I joined a small group because I believe that growing people grow with people. And by the way, Pastor, I think your preaching has been awesome lately. Got no, no critiques for you. Like if that ever happened in our church, I might ask to have that person drug tested. Because when people call the church, it's usually because they're in crisis. And there's a storm they're going through. And their lives are falling apart. But if we can wrap our minds around the godly leadership of 1 Corinthians 13, it changes everything. It changes everything. And let me just say one more thing on this. See, when I've taken the time to love and get to know difficult people in my life, here's what I've often discovered. That the most difficult people often have had the most difficult circumstances in life which have helped cause them to become the most difficult people. And when we take the time to actually get to know them, we start to have empathy for them instead of demonizing them. And I'm not saying that you excuse all the bad behaviors of a difficult person. But when we take the time to understand them, it helps us to have compassion and love. One of the greatest things that a leader can do is become a student of the people they lead. That's one of the greatest things you can do. If you're a parent trying to lead your kids, one of the greatest things you can do is start to really get to know your kids. What are the things they love? 
who are their best friends, what's their favorite music, really starting to understand and know them for who they are. If you're a boss at work, knowing your staff, understanding them. If you're leading a ministry team here at church, the people who volunteer under your leadership, knowing them, finding out the things they love. So let me ask you a question today. Here's our big question for the day. Do you know the story of the people you lead? Do you know the story of the people you lead? Because you know what, church? People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So in our last few minutes today, I'm just going to jump into this one verse, verse 4, and quickly look at four things that we can learn about godly leadership based on love and this idea that love is patient. And, let, and we're going to look at a quick biblical example. So here we go. 1 Corinthians 13, 4, love is patient. And again, I'm, I'm one of the worst people when it comes to patience, especially when driving. And, and here's the thing with driving. It just takes one crazy on the road, right, to ruin our time, right? One person who's driving five miles under the speed limit in the passing lane and won't move. One person who doesn't know how to merge off a ramp into traffic, right? One person who tailgates, one person who fails to use a turn signal. And so let me ask you a question. I want to know if you guys do this just to, to kind of help see how dysfunctional we all are together. So raise your hand if you do this. Um, and I, di I did this just the other week where we were going to, uh, to Comic-Con uh, down in Boston, take, taking the kids to the, the comic convention. And um, there was a big accident, and we're, we're like stuck in traffic. It's like, it's like barely moving. And we're stuck in traffic, and there are two lanes still open. And so what I do in situations like that is I pick the lane. I pick the lane. But in my mind, I mentally locked my place in the other lane of where I would be. <laughs> and as the other lane started moving faster than the lane that I had picked, my anger level started to rise. Is there anybody like me here today? Anyone? Yes, my people. Okay, I feel you. So I'm not great with this patience thing. In fact, um, I got... So frustrated in the car recently, and I was just mumbling and stuff like that. And my 11-year-old son, Jace, starts singing a song that he learned in Lighthouse Kids um, over the summer. And he starts going, P-A-T-I-E-N-C-E, you gotta wait for it, Dad. Like, <laughs> Dad needs more patience. See, like many of us, I struggle with patience. But if we're really going to become godly leaders, the godly leaders God is calling us to be, we have to work on patience. And let's look again quickly at four things about godly leadership that we can learn from this short verse. Number one, if you're taking notes, an impatient leader will eventually become an ineffective leader. An impatient leader will eventually become an ineffective leader. Have you ever worked with an impatient leader? After a while, you tune them out. They start sounding like Charlie Brown's teacher. Wah, 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 wah. I used to get impatient about church services, and I would get frustrated when a certain video wouldn't come together in time, or a song for a message wouldn't work, and, and finally, my creative arts pastor pulled me aside, and he spoke with me, and he said, Pastor AJ, I see what you're trying to do, and you got some great ideas, but if you want us to pull off all these elements that you're trying to do in a service on a Sunday morning, you really got to give me like six weeks notice. And he was right. 
instead of being impatient, instead of trying to do things last minute, I started the habit of planning out more in advance so that we could strive for excellence in what we were trying to do in ministry. Our staff team here, like you guys don't know this, but our staff team here, they know sermons and sermon series and what we're doing at least a month out in advance, if not longer. And the reason for that is it allows us to raise the level of excellence of what we're able to do on Sunday morning. Now, in scripture, if anyone understood the value of patience, it was David. David was the youngest of the eight sons of Jesse. His job was tending the sheep out in the fields. And you may remember the prophet Samuel came to Jesse's house one day, getting ready to anoint the next king, the future king of Israel, as God had led him to do. And Jesse called all his boys forward, right? No, he forgot one. Who did he forget? Little David, right? Out in the field. It was David, though, who would eventually be anointed as the future king. But David didn't become king in that moment, church. It wasn't until decades later, when he was like in his 30s, David was a patient leader. He waited. He prepared himself to become the king that God called him to be. By contrast, King Saul was an impatient leader. And his impatience eventually cost him his leadership. Which leads to point number two. Godly leaders embrace the process. Godly leaders embrace the process. A lot of us get, get focused on the palace of where we want to go. Nicer, bigger, newer, better. We want to be admired. We want to be respected. We want to be in a position of authority over other people. But what we fail to realize is you're never ready for the palace until God first prepares you in the pasture. You're never ready for the palace until God first prepares you in the pasture. There wasn't a lot of glory in little David watching sheep and running errands for his dad. In the movie 9 to 5, there wasn't a lot of glory in the work of the three heroines at the company. They did menial jobs. They worked as secretaries. They ran errands and got coffee. And they walked around the company helping people on different tasks. But you know what? They learned so much about the company and about the different people who worked there. And it prepared them to actually become better leaders when they had the opportunity. And some of us, we feel like we're out in the pasture and we think, God, I'm just wasting my time. I'm just wasting my energy. Isn't there anything greater for my life? God, give me more money. Give me more influence. Give me more prominence. And God's response is simply this. If you can't be faithful with what's before you now, why would I show you what's next? You can't move to what's next until you obeyed what's now. David spent years preparing in the pasture before he got to the palace. See, one of the reasons David had success against the giant Goliath and, and that he became the greatest king Israel ever had was because he had first spent time alone with God in the pasture, growing his relationship with God. The pasture you currently might find yourself in may actually be an opportunity for you to grow in your walk and in your relationship with God. There is always a pasture before the palace. After David defeats Goliath, guess what? He still doesn't become king. No, he goes and works for a king, a terrible king, 
a horrible leader. The three heroines in 9 to 5, they experienced working for a terrible leader just like David. But sometimes working for a bad leader can teach you to be a better one. And if you're, if you're going to become the king of Israel someday, where's the best place to learn how to do that? Where do you think? Probably the palace, right? With the current king. So God put David through a process to become a better leader. Well, after some time, King Saul goes crazy, and he becomes so jealous at David's growing popularity that he wants to kill him, even though David is loyal. And so David goes on the run, and he hides from King Saul, and he, he runs all around the kingdom of Israel. Here's another question for you. If you're going to one day lead a nation, do you think it's important to learn the geography of that nation? Probably, right? Isn't God amazing? Even in the difficult time in David's life as he's on the run, he placed David in a position to still learn and still develop as a leader. In your path to develop as a leader, are you embracing the process? Which leads to number three. Being developed is always greater than being discovered. Being developed is always greater than being discovered. One of the best things and worst things I think that's happened in society is social media. And I love some things about social media. I hate some things about social media. But let me tell you, one of the bad things about social media is that there are too many people trying to do crazy things on social media to get noticed and to get discovered. I thank God social media wasn't around as I was developing as a young leader because it allowed me to develop in secret. And in my various ministry roles, do you know what I did? Everything. I did everything, even jobs I hated. As a growing pastoral leader, I worked with infants, preschoolers, elementary kids, middle schoolers, high school students, college age, young adults, greeters. I counseled people. I served on the worship team. I cleaned the building. I took out the trash. I set up and tore down tables and chairs and rooms. I worked in sound ministry, and I locked up the building. And through those experiences, God taught me things over 20 years that prepared me to be the leader I am today. And it wasn't because I read a book. It was because I did those things. My senior pastor actually had a line in my job description that we would review every year. And that line was other duties. So it had all my job description and then it said other duties. And he loved that line because if something needed to get done in church, guess what? I had to do it. I even helped build the church sign outside of the building. You guys know about church signs, right? They say turn or burn, get saved or microwaved. CHCH, what's missing? You are, right? Uh, there's, here's a couple of church signs, right? Try our Sundays, they're better than Baskin Robbins, right? <laughs> Here's one I thought was really funny. Having trouble sleeping? Try one of our sermons. Yeah. Hopefully that's nobody in here. I'm just, just hoping. And after I, after I helped build our church sign, the pastor would tell me every month to go out front and put a new banner up on the sign for events and sermons. And he would give me a staple gun and a banner and a ladder. And so I would go out to the front, and I hated that job because it was a large sign, and the wind was always blowing everywhere, 
And we have this big like circle right in front of our church with a lot of traffic. And people just be staring at me as for an hour I'm pulling staples and trying to get the old sign off and it's flying away and I'm chasing it. And then I had a staple gun and I had to put the new sign up. And it was literally, it was like an hour of suck every month. I hated that job. But do you know what God taught me? God taught me that if I wanted to one day be an authority, that I had to learn to serve under authority. If your view of leadership is about being a big shot and you'd rather have a title than love people and see them come to Jesus, then your focus is being discovered, not being developed. And that's a dangerous place to be. It's a dangerous place to be. Which leads to the last point today, number four. If we can't be trusted with what's now, how can we be trusted with what's next? If we can't be trusted with what's now, how can we be trusted with what's next? One of the things I learned to do in ministry over the years was oversee a budget. Um, when I was a college student, I managed a group of teens called the District Impact Team. And if you don't know what that is, it's a group of teenagers who travels around to various churches, and we sing songs, and we do bad skits, and tell people about Jesus. And in leading this team, I was given a budget of $500. And I did such a good job managing that budget that the next year they told me I would get the same budget. And I was like, could I at least get $600? I was like, if you don't want people to go to hell, I need like $100 more. <laughs> and so they raised the budget a little. But then when I became a children and family pastor, I got a pretty, pretty good-sized church. I got a, a good budget. I got a budget of $10,000 for children's ministry. And I was like, wow, we can get some T-shirts now. Like, we can do some stuff with $10,000. By the time I left that role 10 years later, I was managing a family ministry budget of $25,000. And then I planted a church. And as I planted a church and it started to grow, I was managing a budget of $100,000 a year. And now our church has a budget of several hundred thousand dollars a year. But I wouldn't be a good leader here if I hadn't first learned how to manage a budget of $500. One of the most interesting stories in the Bible, and it never gets preached about because it's highly uncomfortable, is when Saul realizes that David likes his daughter and wants to marry her. And he wants to get rid of David and have him killed. So he gives David this dangerous and bizarre task to earn the hand of his daughter. And King Saul is David's boss, and he is the epitome. Let me tell you, the epitome of a bad leader, a terrible boss. If you've ever seen movies like Office Space or Horrible Bosses or 9 to 5, I mean, King Saul takes the cake with this nasty task that he assigns David. And if you think the Bible is boring... You're in for a shock. 1 Samuel 18, verse 25. Here's what it says. Saul replied, say to David, the king wants no other price for the bride than 100 Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. And, and, and seeing David's, you know, response to this really gives us a window into David's character. Saul told David, all I want for the hand of my daughter is uh, the foreskins of a hundred Philistines. Now, I want to pause for a second. Can we all agree this morning that is disgusting, right? Amen, right? And if you don't know what a foreskin is, don't Google it. Like, don't. Don't do that. Okay, bad. Ask Pastor TJ before you leave today. He will he'll unpack that for you. Maybe over lunch. Might be a good conversation. 
But Saul's hope was that David would get killed doing this. But look at David's response. Last thing we'll look at, and then we're going to pray. Verse 26. When the attendants told David these things, he was pleased. David took his men with him and went out and killed 200 Philistines and brought back their foreskins. They counted out the full number, don't want to know how that looked like, to the king so that David might become the king's son-in-law. David was pleased. Say what? I was upset changing a church sign. The next time you're struggling in your job, maybe you should remember David and it'll change your perspective. What did David do? He didn't get 100, he got 200. He's like, oh, you want 100 king? I'll double that for you. He took a bad situation and he made it better. You want to be a godly leader? Are you going to demand? Are you going to complain? Are you going to be impatient? Are you going to lead with love and patience and humility? And whatever God puts in your hands, are you going to have a positive attitude and try to make it better? Because if you can't be trusted with what's now, how can you be trusted with what's next? doesn't matter how bad the situation may be. Godly leaders will always triumph, always triumph through love and patience. So what kind of a leader will you be for God? Can we pray? Heads bowed and eyes closed. Heavenly Father, I, I know it's going to land in a lot of different places, a message like this. For the people in the room today, we've got students in here. We've got young adults in here. We've got adults and parents and grandparents in here today, Lord God. But I think this is an area of life where a lot of us struggle, and it's a challenge. So God, I pray that you would give us wisdom to know what to do with what we've heard today on this topic of godly leadership, leadership built on love and patience. And God, you would give us not only the wisdom to process that, but you'd give us the courage to take action, to actually take the truth from your word and apply it into our lives so that we can take a next step, that we can be changed, that we can become more and more like your son Jesus, living out the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Father, for the student, the man or woman here today who would say, Pastor, you know, this is convicting to me. I, there's areas that I need to work on when it comes to this topic of patience and love. Maybe the way I am with my kids, my spouse, people in my school, people at my work. God, I need your help with this. This is an area that I want to lay at your feet. I'm convicted. I want to surrender this to you. God, help me to be a better leader to live with love and patience. If that's you today, would you just have a moment of courage? Just lift your hand and say, Pastor, would you pray for me? That's me. I need to work on, I need to work on love and patience in my life. Praise God. So many people just honest and transparent today. Most of the room. God, I pray that you would honor the people who just lifted a hand today here in our live service, people who are watching at home, Lord God. You know every heart. You know every name. You know every story, Lord God. I pray that this just wouldn't be a sermon they hear and walk out of here and go back to business as usual, but that this would be a, a life change moment, a crossroads moment where they would start to move in a new direction on a new path, Lord God, when it comes to, to becoming a leader for you, leading with love and patience in their lives. God, we love you. We want to honor you with our lives today. 
and we give you all the glory, the honor, and praise for what you're doing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, God. As uh, the worship team gets ready to close us in service, I want to invite you to stand today. If, uh, if, if you need to pray, if, uh, if you've got some stuff that you need to work out with God today, I want to let you know the, the altars are open as always. If you want to come forward and pray, you can do that. Also, for those of you who are interested in hearing more about the Israel trip, immediately following service, we're going to have um, a time of information in here with myself and, and Aaron Lawton, who's our team leader, for about 15, 20 minutes. It'll be a short time, I promise you, to give you some important details about that upcoming trip. Let's sing together. Walking around these walls I thought by now they'd fall But you have never failed me yet change to come knowing the battles won for you have never failed me yet your promise still stands great is your faithfulness faithfulness Still in your hands, this is my confidence, you've never failed me yet. I know the night won't last. You're still enough. Keep me within your love. My heart will sing your praise again. Your promise still stands. Great is your Sing this out with me. 
presence would reside in their homes and in their lives, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would increase patience for others within us, Lord, with our family, with our friends, with those we work with, so that we may perhaps play a part in loving people to Jesus. Lord, we pray your grace, your mercy, your goodness would follow us throughout this week. In your name, Lord. Go in God's peace.